0: Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This is episode 22, in which we will talk about minimalism, what it means to me and what it might mean to you. We'll also talk about front wheel drive versus rear wheel drive versus four wheel drive, a tale from the road of the Texas Death March, a review of the Curtis tow Hitch, and visiting Starry Meadows. Let's go. Howdy, folks. Uh, I've had the interesting experience this week of driving a Ford Transit, a 2019 Ford Transit short wheelbase mid-roof vehicle with a sliding door. And, um, it's you know, it's not my normal van, and I was uh, using it to deliver PPE and hand sanitizer and that kind of thing to uh, the local community here. And it taught me a lot about vans. Um, I mean, I've driven other vans before, of course. I've driven basically all the vans, except I haven't actually driven a Sprinter, I don't think. But spending a good deal of time in someone else's van gave me a better perspective on van size. A couple little things I noticed. First, the Ford Transit has a very nice front. The cab is very nice. But the back, before you build it out, It's really flimsy and has lots of sharp edges, and honestly, it just wasn't very appealing. It made me think less of it, to be honest. Also, the step up from the ground to get into the thing was much, much higher than my NV200, and I tripped a few times because, you know, I'm kind of used to stepping up in the back there. Just a couple of quick little observations that uh, it's a good idea to spend time in the van that you're going to end up buying because you're going to learn some things that aren't necessarily obvious. This week, I wanted to talk about minimalism, minimalism, and I, uh, I've been a fan of minimalism in art for a long time. I enjoy minimalist music like Laurie Anderson and Steve Reich, and I like minimalist art like, say, Magritte, that type of thing where there's not a lot of adornment. That stuff's all a little different than what we're talking about in van life anyway. The, the minimal part gives you the idea that we're talking about less. And I think that is the concept that carries forth. And doing a little bit of research to talk about this, I, I came across an article on nosidebar.com. It's actually a, an intro to a course you can take on minimalism. And uh, it broke it down pretty nice for me. So I'm going I'm to steal their format, and I'll give you a link in the show notes. This was written by Melissa Kamara Wilkins. So I want to give full credit there. She has it broken down into these five types. The essentialist, the experientialist, the enoughist, the eco-minimalist, and the Soul Minimalist. Let's talk about each of those um, individually, and then I'll kind of tie them all together, or not, at the end. So the Essentialist is the idea that you're going to focus on fewer things, but more intently. You're going to do better with fewer things. So instead of having 17 different sharp knives in your kitchen, you would just have one really good sharp knife that you could do everything with. Or if you were going to play musical instruments, instead of having a, a guitar, a flute drums and a harmonica you were just going to focus on that harmonica and become the best harmonica player you could it's the idea that you choose fewer things and make them more important and that's that's kind of if you have a van that's kind of what you're doing right you're 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 not going to have a home filled with many rooms you're going to have a smaller van space that you're going to focus on and make it the best but best is a subjective term i I am not really an essentialist. I adopt a bit from each of these philosophies to some extent, but I'm not really an essentialist because I am a jack of all trades. I am not that one sharp knife. I'm a leather man. And that means I do a whole bunch of things, but not very well. Um, There's always somebody doing something better than I am. I'm never the best in the room at anything but I do have this somewhat unique ability to be able to do almost everything. I can I can plug myself into different roles and be different people at different times. This is probably a mental disorder of some sort, but what the heck, I'm 53 years old, I might as well embrace it at this point. Essentialism is not what I'm doing with minimalism, but uh, again, I'm going to steal a little bit of it. I do like the idea of having as few pots and pans as possible, as few knives as possible. Don't want any clutter. <laughs> Minimalism versus clutter is is a common theme here. The next one on the list is experientialist, and this one definitely applies to me. This is the idea that you collect experiences rather than things. So instead of collecting a baseball that was used in every baseball park all around the country, you would go see a game at every baseball park all around the country, which my father actually did in 2004. He went to every single park and saw a game there. Uh, there's a website for that if you're interested. It's 30parks.com, 30parks.com. It's interesting stuff. It's, it's a little dated. I built the website, obviously, 16 years ago. I've traveled to all 50 states and I've been to a bunch of different countries. I haven't quite made the 100 Club yet. Uh, I hope to do that before I die. But the nice thing about collecting experiences is they, they can't be taken away from you. So long as you have a mind and a memory, all those experiences and memories are yours. And they're uniquely yours because they're all filtered through your perception. So I can really relate to the experientialist part of minimalism. When I'm thinking about heading out on the road again... I'm looking for experiences, not things. I'm not looking for souvenirs. I'm not looking for numbers, even. I'm just looking to have new experiences and to experience the world in a different way. So, highly recommend that form of minimalism. Although, as far as van life is concerned, that relates more to where you're going to go than what you're going to do with your van. Then there is the enoughist. I kind of like this too. This is the idea that you just need enough. You don't need more than enough. You just need enough. What do you need to live in a van? What is enough? Well, I mean, honestly, if you think of your van as a metal tent, which is a metaphor I like to use all the time, you don't need that much. You need a way to sleep, a way to eat, and a way to take care of yourself. And you can do all those things in a tent. I mean, a sleeping bag, drinking water, food that doesn't need to be refrigerated or cooked. I mean, That's all enough. The idea with this is is that you would focus on that. You would try to avoid having too much. If somebody came up and gave to you, say, another Swiss Army knife and you already had one, then you would not accept it. Or you would give it to somebody else or sell it or whatever because you would not want to have more than enough. This definitely does apply in van life. For me, I tend to think of every bad scenario and then plan against it and like bring all the stuff I would need with me. So my first few trips in the van, I had so much extra stuff in there that I didn't need that I actually emptied out the van and went through everything and said, did I use this? No, it's not going back in the van. I ended up with this big pile of stuff and then I had so much more storage space. So enoughism really, really applies to van life for me. And I think just about everyone. If you're a hoarder, type of person, and I am, to some extent, uh, my house is filled with all kinds of little scraps of wood and plastic that I might need someday, so I get that. Van life is going to be a little bit more difficult for you, but not impossible. There's plenty of people with cluttered vans out there that are having a great time. This one is the one uh, you're going to see on Instagram and YouTube a lot, and that is the Eco Minimalist. These are folks that are attracted to van life to try to lower their impact on the world. Uh, This one I struggle with a bit. Um, I certainly don't have any problem with the concept. I mean, we should all be as least wasteful as possible. But you get into trouble here if you think about it too much. First off, you're in a vehicle. You would actually reduce your impact on the world by living in an apartment that's probably the lowest impact place you can live because everybody's sharing the same square of ground. They're sharing a bunch of utilities. I think when you do the math, a high rise apartment is probably the lowest impact on the world. Vans use gas and fuel. They need space and they're really not that eco, but then you might say, oh, I'm going to make that, I'm going to make up for that with like what I eat and how I take care of myself and all that. And yeah, Sure. Um, you can help there, but because you can't store a lot of food, you are going to be buying smaller quantities, which have a bigger impact on the world as well. So my problem with eco-minimalism is that it seems like some folks embrace this like a religion and they don't look and take the whole picture. This, you know, it's a big enough topic to have its own episode, but while I do try to minimize my impact on the environment, I'm definitely a fan of Leave No Trace, for example, This isn't something I'm going to embrace wholeheartedly because I would be a hypocrite if I did. Because I'm out in my van when I actually have a house and that is not the most eco-friendly thing. Also, and I'm sorry to say this, if you have a pet in your van, you are not embracing eco-minimalism. Pets are a huge source of carbon and while I certainly don't mind if you have a pet, it's definitely something to think about. And the last one... The Soul Minimalist. Full disclosure here, I am not qualified to talk about this topic. I do not have a spiritual life. It's not something I have or want or am interested in. So I am simply going to read the paragraph from this document here so that you get somebody who seems to be familiar with its perspective on it. The Soul Minimalist cherishes stillness of the soul and works to keep mental and spiritual clutter to a minimum. Practices of quiet, mindfulness, stillness, and listening are all important here. That's the soul minimalist. I think a lot of folks in van life are looking for that, to get kind of away from people and kind of experience, oh wait, that's a different one. Oh, no, kind of, um, see I can't even talk about it, but the idea that you want to focus inwardly and kind of be at peace is definitely a part of van life. And I think a lot of people are drawn to van life just to get away from the rat race. And that might apply here. I don't know. That one isn't for me. After reading all of these, I think what I am and what brings me to van life is experientialism and then a combination of enoughist and essentialist. And I'm going to call that an optimist. No, I can't. That's already taken. An optimizerist. No, that's not good at all. Uh, An optimizer. Optimizer? I like that. Optimizing. Optimizing is where I'm at. I'd like to have as little as possible, but as much as is necessary. And that is a step above enoughism because to me, what is necessary is comfort. And I think enoughism will try to steer you away from comfort and maybe get you more into the embrace the suck thinking where you're going to become more comfortable with discomfort also an important part of van life, but not something to be lauded, in my opinion. You, If there's a way to make yourself more comfortable, go ahead and do that. Me having an electric water pump and I can just turn on the tap and water comes out, that is more than I need, but it's definitely something I want. It certainly makes me comfortable. I want my van to be as simple as possible. So for the concept of minimalism, um, I love the art and I love aspects of life that involve it. But I caution folks to take a look at the big picture and not treat it like a religion. What we're doing here is very individual, and we don't have to conform to anybody else's ideas. Tech Talk, let's talk about the types of drivetrains you can have in your van. Now, in the U.S., we have surprisingly few vans available which is it's kind of a shame. If you look at what they have over in the UK, for example, they've got all different shapes and sizes and mostly diesel. You can get diesel vans in the US, but they're less common, and diesel is not uh, as good an economy here. But I want to talk specifically about how the wheels move, basically. you've got You've got three options when you buy a van. You can get rear-wheel drive, which is the standard, most common type for vans, and that is there's a drive shaft coming from the engine, that powers the rear wheels. Very simple, very time-honored. You can get front-wheel drive, which is uh, two constant velocity joints that make the front wheels go, and there's nothing going to the back wheels at all. And then you can get four-wheel drive that comes in a variety of configurations, including all-wheel drive, full-time four-wheel drive, part-time four-wheel drive. And then you can have front and rear diff locks and center diff lock. There's all kinds of different ways to do four-wheel drive. But let's talk about the pros and cons of each. Okay, rear-wheel drive. This is what you're going to find in your Ford Econo line and your Ford Transit and your Chevy vans and uh, your Sprinters. Most vans are rear wheel drive and that's because rear wheel drive is the strongest drive it's the one you can abuse the most you can put a lot of weight on it you can tow a lot with it and if that's your concern maximum payload or if you're going to be towing something heavy rear wheel drive is probably what you want it's also the simplest it's the easiest to repair it has the fewest moving parts believe it or not but there are some downsides to rear wheel drive it doesn't allow you to have a low floor because there's this big drive shaft going from the engine to the rear you need space for that and that space is underneath the floor so if you've ever stepped up into a a traditional van it's a much higher step than it is into a front-wheel drive van also because rear-wheel drive vans tend to have a higher cargo capacity they're jacked up more to begin with they have beefier springs and that pushes the body up While these vans may look like there's a lot more interior room from the outside because they sit so high and their roofs are so high, in fact, on the inside, that's not where that is. It's underneath the van that's being pushed up. So it's something to consider with rear-wheel drive. Front-wheel drive, which is basically only available in the smaller vans like the NV200 and in the Promaster, which is the only U.S. van that has front-wheel drive that I'm aware of. Uh, that's the same as a Fiat Ducato if you're if you're overseas. It has a bunch of advantages. There there are some maneuverability advantages. There's a really tight turning radius in these because of the way they they are where the wheels are pulling the vehicle along. They can actually adjust the turning radius to be much tighter, and in some cases, they're more maneuverable. Say in snow and such. Um, having the drive wheels be movable can help you in certain circumstances. But because you've got the drive wheels at the front, when you're towing, it kind of creates a bad dynamic, where if you have the front wheels turned, you're you're sending a whole lot less power to the rear of the vehicle, and that makes the engine have to work harder to tow the same amount. So I I have a front-wheel drive vehicle. I'm I'm a fan. I I think front-wheel drive is a fine option for a van, and it also allows for a lower floor, which I think is great. But you will have to give up some of your, your oomph. And, th- and that's okay. You can give up some of your oomph. I mean, you know, most of us here are just building camper vans. We're not trying to haul trailers full of gravel anywhere. Also, front-wheel drive can often have a gas mileage benefit. If you're going straight on a highway, a front wheel drive is going to use a lot less power than a rear wheel drive cuz you don't have to spin that big drive shaft and get the power back there. Four wheel drive, as it is in vans, that's almost always all wheel drive, which isn't true four wheel drive. All wheel drive means that every wheel can turn, but typically they don't all turn at the same time. You might have front left and right rear, and that will adjust based on the traction. It's good. I mean, it's certainly better for going off-road or driving in slick conditions than either the other options, but don't mistake all-wheel drive for four-wheel drive. All-wheel drive is not meant for going off-road. It is not beefy and strong. It is just more nimble and sure-footed. Now, the vans that do have four-wheel drive, like the Econoline, they have beefier four-wheel drive systems, and These are great if you are going to be spending a lot of time in super snowy conditions or going off-road, but you do pay a price for four-wheel drive. There's a lot more mechanical complexity, there's a lot more that can break, and it eats up some serious gas mileage. Four-wheel drive is not the efficient way to go. In fact, the most efficient way to go is one-wheel drive, and that's usually how your car is operating, is only one of those wheels is providing power. So think about those things, everything is a trade-off. Personally, for me, I think front-wheel drive is the best balance of everything, but rear-wheel drive has a lot of appeal as well, and four-wheel drive, without a doubt, is going to let you get to more places. So consider what you're going to do, and oh, and also remember, with four-wheel drive, you're going to pay a premium for that. Four-wheel drive vehicles are going to cost a lot more than the other two. There's a lot to think about, but make a list of what you want to do with your van and what your budget is, and try to find that happy medium. Tales from the road. So I'm going to admit some bias here and someone called me out on it in the best possible way. Um, I grew up in New England and in New England, we had an opinion of Texas that was less than favorable. We looked at Texas as kind of this big, dumb, proud state. I would often say that Texas is missing an S. Now, I had been to Texas, but I hadn't spent any real time there. And I had a friend from Texas. And she was like, hey, who are you to be talking about Texas like that? You've never been there. You don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, well, you know, and, and she said, no, no, you don't get to talk like that. You don't get to talk like that unless you come down here and spend a week with me in Texas and let me show you what Texas really is. And she did. And this is my friend, Naomi. Naomi, if you're listening, thank you very much for an incredible week. She invited me and my friends, Terry and Steve, to meet her in Dallas. And we got into a car and we drove all over Texas. I mean, we didn't drive all over Texas because Texas is huge. But we went to Dallas-Fort Worth. We went to San Antonio. We went to Austin. We went to waco we went to luling which i've mentioned before basically got a nice sampling of texas and i had a great time and i learned to really appreciate texas for what it is which is a very big very diverse state Texas is not its stereotype. Now, I do admit that there is this weird pride in Texas that I don't quite understand. Um, You'll see the Texas flag flying a whole lot more than, say, you'll see the Illinois flag flying, and you'll see the shape of Texas, like, on everything, Texas-shaped mailboxes and swimming pools and topiaries, and I don't really understand the pride part, but I don't really understand pride to begin with, so there is that aspect of it. But honestly, if you go to a major city in Texas, you're going to find conservative people, liberal people, people from all over the world, immigrants, people who are gay, people who are straight, people who are religious, people who aren't religious. It's just a big cosmopolitan place. And a lot of its reputation comes from TV shows and media that have stereotyped the people that live there. While there are definitely things I don't like about Texas, there's an awful lot that I do. And I actually travel there quite a bit these days. And I was completely taught a lesson in prejudice by a friend who took the time to show me where I was wrong. And I think that was the best possible way to do so. So my cowboy hat is off to Texas. Don't actually own a cowboy hat, so it's always off. And to Naomi for taking me out there and also to Terry and Steve for for helping make that week. Absolutely wonderful. And hey, folks, if you get a chance, go to Texas. And go experience the real Texas. Don't, uh, don't just go do the stereotype tours. Go and see what is actually there that's super interesting, because there's a lot. Product review, although it's going to be a little bit weird, um, This is a product review of the Curtis Tow Hitch. So, vans are not traditionally thought of as tow vehicles. Uh, generally, if you're going to tow something, you're not going to get a van. But there are a lot of reasons to have a tow hitch on your, your van. One is that, occasionally, you might need to tow something. But another is that you can get all kinds of adapter thingies that go on your tow hitch that'll hold your bicycles or big storage containers, or sometimes it's just a rack that comes down. And yes, they even sell toilet seats that fit on your tow hitch. So there are lots of reasons to get a tow hitch. Now, one way to get one is to go to U-Haul and say, Hey, I want a tow hitch and they'll install one and everything, but it's actually not that hard to do it yourself. A while ago, I installed a Curtiss tow hitch on my NV200. Now, the NV200 is not rated for towing at all. If you look in the owner's manual, the tow rating is zero. So it was on my smart car, and I towed a trailer all over the country with that, and it was fine. So just be aware that you may be cheating when you put a tow hitch on, but it's still worth doing if you're going to just do light things like I did. Now, they bolt on in most cases, and Curtiss provides you with guides and videos and instructions on how to bolt it on. Now for my van, they had messed up the instructions and the video a bit, so what I recommend you do is watch their instructions and video and then search YouTube for how other people did it. On mine, they, they had you cut out a part of the trim of the bumper, but it was the wrong part. They actually reversed it, even in their own video. And I thought they had, but I said, well, I better follow their instructions. And then afterwards I realized, no, they actually did that backwards. It wasn't a big deal, the hitch is fine. It is, uh, it's a fairly easy thing to do, although um, it, that varies greatly by van. On mine, there was a very tricky nut. I had to fish through the body that took a lot of time. But hey, if you're reasonably handy, uh, and if you're building a van, I would say even if you don't consider yourself reasonably handy, you probably are. A Curtis tow hitch is something that you can do for not that much money. The hitches usually are like 150 bucks, but they're going to be lightweight hitches. You're not going to be towing your 45 foot yacht with these things, but Hey, consider this for 150 bucks. You can add a whole lot of flexibility to your travels. If for some reason you need to rent a small trailer, Hey, now you're all set. You can do that with no big deal. Or if you find that you're really putting way too much stuff in the van or Hey, maybe you're a hunter and you need a way to carry a dead deer. Toe hitch with a fold down rack is a great way to do that. So I'm going to recommend Curtis with the caveat that their instructions aren't necessarily perfect and you might need to do some work on there. And uh, I'll have a link in the show notes to their website so you can find them out. Curtis toe hitches, not a bad thing. I got a message from Diana asking me um, a very important question and a little bit, it's a little tricky to answer. Just want to read it here real quick. I've been listening to your podcast for the past two months. Love the podcast. Please continue to do it. Your advice has been very helpful. Okay. Thank you, Diana. I do appreciate that. And here's her question. I have kittens that are living in the van with me. And right now her son is able to watch the kittens, but that isn't going to be true forever. And she needs to work like most people. So her question is, what does she do with the kittens while she's at work? How can she leave them in the van? All right. So this is a, this is a hot topic and I don't, no pun intended. Leaving pets in vehicles is a big no-no in general, but in this case, your vehicle is your home. So what I told Diane was cats are fairly hardy. They can tolerate pretty cold temperatures and actually can tolerate fairly hot temperatures. Their ancestors actually lived in the desert, but that doesn't mean you can leave them in a van out in the sun that will kill any animal. She lives in California, so I don't actually know what kind of environment she has, because California has every kind of environment. Every other option is better than leaving the kitten in the van. But if you don't have a choice, the best thing you can do is to make sure the kitten has lots of water and make sure the vehicle's parked in the shade. Now, I'm not so worried about the cold. The cat will take care of itself in the cold. You can give it a nice blanket to curl up in and maybe in a, a, an insulated area. I mean, in... In the city here, people put out coolers with a hole cut in it to have cats li- live in in the winter, and so you could certainly do something like that in your van. That's easy. Having liquid water for them is important, though. You've got to find a way to keep the water from freezing. It's the heat that's the real big deal. So here's the best thing I can offer, and I'm happy to have other suggestions from folks listening. Make sure the cat has a lot of water that they can access all the time. Make sure the van is not in the sun. If you park your van in the sun in the summer, you will kill your cat. Simple as that. Do not do that. Make sure there's ventilation in the van. And obviously you don't want the cat to get out the window, so you, you have this issue where you can't like leave the windows down. So make sure your van has ventilation installed uh, that is adequate to keep the van at least as cool as it is outside. You don't want the van to become an oven. If you can park in a place where your van stays the same temperature as outside, and that means a lot of ventilation again, I think you're going to have your best bet for the cat. Now they do sell devices that will keep track of your temperature in the van and you can access them with your cell phone and all. But then you've got all these complexities of you need to have a Wi-Fi hotspot in the van that's on all the time, and you have to pay for a plan for that, and it's expensive and complex, and I think that if money was no object, you would already have found another solution for this. Another thing to think about is that if people see your van and you have an animal in it, they might do something drastic, like break your windows to get the animal out, not understanding that you had taken precautions. Now, again... It is generally not safe to leave an animal in a vehicle for any length of time. But if you don't have a choice, you have to do what you can. And, and a lot of people in vans are in that situation. So, lots of water, lots of ventilation, and absolutely do not leave your van in the sun. Make sure it is in complete shade. If you can't find a place for complete shade, then I'm afraid that you just can't have a cat in the van. That is the reality because that cat will not survive. And how can you tell if your cat's having trouble? If your cat is panting or acting lethargic, uh, more than normal, that's a sign the cat's overheated. Cats don't pant normally. When a cat's panting, it's in serious distress and you need to take it to the vet. So I hope that helps. I'm happy to hear some other suggestions. I know people are going to say immediately, no, 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 you can't have a cat in the van. I'm not willing to go there because I know people have cats in their vans. They're all over YouTube and Instagram. It can be done, but it does, does, does require some caution. So Diana, thank you very much for writing, and thank you for the kind words, and I hope that is of some help. Okay. I've got a place for you to visit. It's a little tricky. Um, my good friend, Hal Bidlack, who offered to be on this podcast, but I couldn't find a way to make it work with schedules is associated with an organization called the Colorado Springs Astronomical Society. And you might be thinking astronomy, what does that have to do with vans? What are we? Well, CSAS as they're known, um, They're very smart, practical folks. And they bought a big parcel of land near Gardner, Colorado that they call Starry Meadows. And they bought this land specifically because there's no light. There are no big cities nearby. And so at night, it has the absolutely most amazing views of the sky that you can imagine. And all the stars come out. I rented the entire place for a conference I put on a few years ago and had a great time out there. The stars are amazing. You can see everything. To give you an example of what you can see, and I know people are going to call me out on this, but it's absolutely true. We had a man there with a 12 inch telescope and he was able to see Pluto, but not only Pluto, he was able to see Charon, Pluto's moon. It is at the very, very, very limit of what his telescope could possibly hope to see. And he saw it because the conditions were so perfect. That's pretty amazing. And what I really enjoy there is that you can see satellites and all these man-made objects. They're all cataloged, like pieces of rocket boosters that were ejected and broken satellites and stuff. For some reason, I find that fascinating. But here's the really cool thing if you join the Colorado Springs Astronomical Society, and it's not expensive, I think it's uh, $50 a year. Now with COVID, everything's changed and stuff, and all their conferences are probably going to be canceled this year. We're just going to put that aside for now. In normal times, if you join their society, they will let you camp on that ground for free. Now it's dry camping, it's boondocking, there's no water, there's no toilet. It's just a big open field. Well, it's actually not just a big open field. There's some nice forest there. Uh, It's low forest, kind of scrubby, a good amount of flat land. And hey, if you're interested in astronomy and you are through Colorado with any regularity, this is one of the best deals you can get. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to this, episode 22. Next week, we're going to talk about one of the hottest topics in van life, finding work that you can do from your van. I have a, a great new resource that just happened, and I have my own ideas. We'll talk about that. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg, a.k.a. Sir Mooj. I hope you're doing well in these difficult times, and please remember that kindness is the greatest currency of all. Talk to you next time.